Trevor Quatri is the editor of Analog Science Fiction and Fact, a bi-monthly science fiction magazine founded in 1930 and which is often considered the magazine where science fiction grew up. Since assuming his current role in 2012, Trevor has worked to bring together celebrated authors, new talent, and award-winning stories, poems, and articles into the pages of his magazine. And now to our interview with Trevor Quatri. So Trevor, I wanted to start with your magazine. Analog has a long history and has published many celebrated writers in its time. And I'm curious what it's like to take the reins as you did in 2012 at such an esteemed magazine and how do you observe and, you know, pay homage to that history while also building something new and, you know, that's, uh, that's different than what came before? Uh, well, that's a great question. Um, and the, the, the answer is mixed in that, um, there, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of pressure anytime you take over something that has a, a big following and a long history. And there are certain expectations built in with uh, how you're going to do it, what you're going to do once you do it. Um, but on the other hand, there's a certain advantage to also operating within defined parameters. Uh, it's a little bit like when you were a kid and you got a homework assignment and you just had nowhere to start. And in some ways, that's a little more daunting than having somebody give you a specific goal and say, hey, do this and do it this way. So it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a mixed bag in that regard, that there's, there's pressure to live up to certain expectations, but there's also a little bit of a, you have a little bit of a guiding star as part of that, which, which is, is, is also a little bit of a relief. Yeah. How did you come to the magazine? Like, what, what is your backstory? How did you get there in 2012? Well, so I took over as editor in 2012, but I'd actually been working. I started at uh, Analog as an editorial assistant. And also I was shared, uh, I worked also for Asimov's, which is sort of the sister science fiction magazine. Um, so I was the editorial assistant. I started both of them back in 1999. So at this, this is actually, yeah, just past my, my 20 year anniversary of doing pretty much every single possible thing you can think of at a magazine on the way up the ladder. That's amazing, wow. So you've been there quite a long time. Yes, it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm not that old. It's just, it's my first job out of school, so. Well, that's a pretty good job, I must say. Yeah. yeah. So can you kind of give us just a general description of Analog, the magazine in general? You know, it's a bit about its history, a bit about its future maybe, a bit about where it is now, uh, and then what kind of makes you different from other science fiction magazines that are out there, and then maybe you can, um, you know, give reference to some of those as well. Yeah. Um, so this is, uh, 2020 is our 90th anniversary. So we're the uh, longest continuous, longest running continuously published science fiction magazine. Um, and uh, our first issue was January of 1930. And um, we've only had, let me see, one, two, three, four, I believe I'm the fifth editor. It has not had, it's had a couple editors with extremely long runs. Uh, I, I'm not one of them as of yet. Um, and the, the thing that defines Analog in comparison to other science fiction magazines specifically is partly the age and history and really going back to having pulp roots as part of it. But um, we started as astounding in 1930. And uh, in the 60s, the editor at the time, John W. Campbell, uh, renamed the magazine, sort of rechristened it, uh, rechristened it 
as analog and gave it more of a hard science fiction bent. So uh, it became decidedly less pulpy. And the goal was always then to have um, realistic science integral to the stories, um, not just a, a sort of a collection of these sort of uh, 50s sci-fi movie tropes like, you know, giant ants and robots and call it a day kind of thing. Uh, really trying to make thoughtful fiction. Uh, and that is something that we still hold, tr hold to today is the, the hard science fiction core. Um, but I also do like to try and keep a certain pulp energy to it a little bit. You know, you want it to be fun. You don't necessarily want a, a science lecture every time you're reading a story. So, right. Yeah. So the hard sci-fi that is, you know, technology forward, idea forward, it's not as, as like social science as, as maybe some of the other science fiction would be. Right. Yeah. That's a good comparison. Um, there are certain stories uh, there are certain branches of science fiction where um, science fiction, to, to digress for a minute, science fiction in general is very idea-oriented, but um, sometimes the idea can be a metaphor or it can be something where you would say, well, how would that work exactly? And for some stories, it's very easy to just say, well, it, it doesn't matter. You know, that's not really the point. Um, for analog, it is kind of the point and it does kind of matter. Um, having something realistic that is plausible, that doesn't contradict how we know things work for the most part. And there's always some, you know, some, some buys, some, something that you have to sort of buy into. But um, something that is conceivably plausible and could happen and affect people's lives uh, grounds it. And it's part of what makes it distinct and different. You know, not better, not worse, just different. Yeah, cool. Uh, so I want to ask you about the development side of a magazine. I imagine you get submissions from prospective writers. And as somebody who goes through those submissions, what to you and your eye makes something pop? How do you identify a new voice, someone that is ready to be published in your magazine? Uh, well, it's really, it's a trio of things. When, I, when I'm reading The Slush, the, the first thing that you, you necessarily have to sort of uh, ask yourself is whether you're, you're reading something that is fun to read, that is pleasant, that is readable, that flows, that the, just on a, a micro and macro level, the writing is good. Uh, if that's the case, almost the very next thing I start looking for is, is the science element, like I was talking about. I start sort of skimming ahead a little bit, thinking, oh, where's the science, where's the science? Because it doesn't always reveal itself. Sometimes you'll read, you know, a 40,000 page novella and they get to the end and you go, okay, there, there was no reveal. There was no twist. There was no explanation. There was no science. It was a story and it turned out to be about vampires or wizards and I can't use it. So very quickly, I'm looking for the science. Uh, and then if it hits sort of the two of those criteria, the next thing, and it's a little nebulous, but what I look for is um, something that kind of comes in from an unexpected angle. So there's been a lot of science fiction over the years and there's, and that's only growing, the field is getting bigger. Um, but you want something that doesn't, that doesn't, uh, that, that just isn't sort of what you would expect necessarily. Sometimes what you expect is nice, but if somebody manages to hit the criteria for being a, a good science fiction story or a good analog story, but does it from a way that catches me off guard that I, that I didn't see coming, I mean, that's, that's pretty much an instant sale right there. I go, yes, absolutely this. Give me that. 
how often would you say that you get those stories uh, submitted to your magazine? Um, it's tough to say. Uh, they, there, there is, it's not super frequent, but there is some regularity to it in that there are people who are sort of um, seasoned professionals who know a little bit about what sort of stories analog looks for and how to how to craft that story. Uh, but there are a lot of people who don't necessarily. And um, I don't know, it's always it's always a pleasant surprise. I can't I, I couldn't give you an exact number, but it's uh, it's it's just enough to keep making a magazine, but right, which is not good. enough to ever feel complacent about it. Right, right. So to kind of um, take a, a bit of a step back and look at uh, science fiction from a larger perspective from when you got into it, um, how has the genre changed since you started paying attention? You know, probably I imagine from you were, when you were a young kid or something yeah. uh, in terms of content. And then what are, um, what new ideas are science fiction writers grappling with today that are different from back then? Uh, from a practical standpoint, the science fiction tends to reflect whatever the science developments of the period are. So, um, you know, when the nation was very focused on the space race, there was a lot of uh, physical and physics and astrophysics based science fiction. And as things changed a little bit as we moved away from that, um, you know, through the 90s, as we started to uh, get more into genetics and CRISPR and the human DNA, the amount of genetic, uh, ge genetically inspired science fiction increased. Uh, there was also a period in there where there was just a ton of nanotechnology kind of happening. Like there was a ton of nanotech science fiction. Um, and some of it was good and some of it was a little, you know, hand wavy sort of, uh, it's basically magic. How did that happen? Well, nanotechnology did it. Yeah, all right. Um, so there's always something like that, you know, right now there's a lot of, uh, climate concerns. So that shows up in science fiction. There's a lot of stuff about, uh, self-driving cars. So that shows up a lot. Uh, and that becomes quickly something that once you see a lot of it as an editor, you quickly want, you, you quickly then want an interesting take on it, you know, because once people go, ah, I'm going to do a self-driving car story, probably 80% of the people who think, ah, I'm going to do a self-driving car story are writing the same self-driving car story. So it's that person who goes, oh, this, I'm going to do that, but how do, I t how do I think one step ahead, one step further than everybody else who's basically writing the same thing? Um, so that's from a practical uh, standpoint. A little more philosophically, there are the things that um, people are concerned about, about what is pressing to them, about what they want to talk about. That isn't necessarily just a reflection of techno technological and scientific development, which is the social aspect, which are the things people are concerned about and they worry about and they talk about in their day to day. Uh, and a lot of that has to do more with right now, it's uh, diversity and increasing the audience and the readership and uh, the various states of the various forms of inequality and um, the importance of new voices and that kind of thing. So uh, it's not one or the other. They're kind of two tracks that run concurrently. Yeah, I, I wanted to piggyback on that, like, in a certain way and ask you, with science fiction, do you find a lot of the authors combat a technological development, like, from a, a point of fear? Like, to me, it seems like with technology developing as it does, there might be a pushback to, say, 
a spaceship or nanotechnology or flight if we're going back like all the way like how do you how do they attack these kind of stories is it is it always from a point of fear or is there a you know a celebration or a just like interest in, in a topic uh that's a that's a that's a really good question too um one of the ways that i kind of jokingly separate science fiction from horror as a genre and they're not necessarily distinct genres because you can certainly have science fiction horror but one of the ways that I separate them, at least as far as analog goes, is a lot of hard depends on, you know, you can, you can put the capital letters here where you think appropriate uh, things man was not meant to know. It's we've gone too far, we've played God. Oh, why did we ever learn this? And, uh, you know, if, if you're going to be putting out a, a, a rationalist uh, pro- human reason magazine fundamentally that's just at odds with that perspective so things that are just too like oh you know we tried to study this and it just backfired or blew up in our face i think is i don't want to say completely antithetical but that's a very tough sell whereas i'm concerned so i don't want to say that i think a certain optimism is baked in because skepticism and a, a little critical thought is always healthy no matter what but um that kind of, you know, we've, we've had decades of that kind of fiction where that kind of fear post Frankenstein is baked in. Um, and uh, yeah, I think at analog, I make an effort and we always have, I mean, this is not my personal change, but um, we make an effort to promote a more optimistic viewpoint that human reason is ultimately a good thing. And we can use that if we choose to make the future better. Makes sense. So when we're talking about this optimism, pessimism divide maybe, or just like, it's just a spectrum. Um, you mentioned climate fiction, which to me would skew pessimistic, but maybe it doesn't. And I am curious, you know, when we talk about climate fiction, has that elevated science fiction in readers' minds in recent years? Is it, is it a more pressing genre today than it maybe had been in years past? Or what are you seeing as far as readership and, and uh, you know, social interaction? Uh, hmm, that's tough. Um, certainly, yeah, it, it's certainly tough to find as much, let's say, optimistic climate change fiction out there. Um, a lot of it has a sense of urgency to it, understandably. Uh, I don't necessarily think that makes it pessimistic, though, if that makes sense. Um, there's a, there's a certain... I'm sorry, I'm losing the thread here a little bit. Um, it's realistic, maybe. Yes, exactly. That, that it, it, it is important to address it and to use the stories a little bit like a lab to say, look, if we don't take care of this, this is what's going to happen. But, um, you know, but to still leave some room that it is, if we act fast and addressable, issue that it, that it's not something where we should just throw up our hands and and give up and say oh well you know we're e we're effed um so but interestingly enough i don't know that that it, even though it does seem like it would be appealing because of its sort of timeliness i don't know that overall that's necessarily bringing in or really um capturing a new readership at least for me i wouldn't even say for the field in general but I, uh, you know, I, I can't really speak for everybody.
when you do put together a magazine, how do you decide, is there a, a way you build it? Like, can you go so optimistic, so pessimistic, so clarify, or are there people that are writing topics that we've considered like 60s or 70s topics? How do you go about like melding all that together into a coherent, you know, book? Uh, also, yeah, so there are a number of ways that sometimes I try and create a little bit of a theme when I put together an issue where um, if I've, I, I don't often buy stories with uh, an, end re, an end goal in mind, but I will buy them and then I will find myself looking at my inventory at some point and I'll be looking at all the stories and it's very easy to then have patterns jump out at you, you know, when you're talking about, you know, a hundred stories or less instead of a, a thousand stories. So the patterns become more evident that way. And once I see patterns, then I can kind of put them together to theme an issue. Uh, but then I also try to balance it a little bit because you don't necessarily want an issue that's entirely one thing or the other. So you want something that, there are definitely times where I go, okay, I, there are enough downbeat stories in this issue. You gotta have something that's a little, that is that does not just bum everybody out for a month or two. Um, so striking a balance, kind of is is on the other hand of putting together a theme um you know for seasonal issues like around uh, october if i'm going to try and do anything that's faintly uh scary or seems like it's sort of monstery that's where i'll put it i tend to put lighter stuff around april for humor um i also tend to not use a lot of time travel stories but I, when i do use them i kind of save them all and i tend to put them almost all in one issue there's no real reason for that other than other than my own kind of like how do you make time travel a hard science fiction thing anyway so if i'm going to use a good story right let's, use, let's let's kind of i'm only going to get away with this once a year let's do it now um but yeah so there you go cool so um so science fiction has had like this i don't know if people look look down upon it or whatever i'm probably not thinking of the right word but you know, it's, it's, it's place in literature has been debated, let's say, uh, in the past, you know, 50, 60 years or whatever. So what do you think about that now, as opposed to the past? And then is there a greater appetite for science fiction nowadays, as opposed, um, to, to when you were first reading, maybe? Uh, yeah, that, that's, um, it, it's, there's a term, and I don't, I don't necessarily love the term, but there is something of a, a genre or a science fiction ghetto, which uh, is the sense that, you know, it's the, the field is a little bit marginalized and pushed to the side by the mainstream. Um, and there, you can still find elements of that here and there, but it, it's faded significantly, uh, even compared to when I was a kid. So even the past 20 or 30 years, it's, it's really not like it, it was. Um, in some ways, science fiction is kind of one, so to speak. You know, you can put air quotes around that. Uh, you know, science fiction's everywhere now. Uh, the down point is that that means that it used to be that the science fiction magazines and short stories and the publishing market was really the place to go if you wanted good science fiction. If you wanted science fiction at all, this is where you went. Uh, but that's not the case now, that, you know, post-Star Wars, science fiction blockbusters are everywhere you know most video games are science fiction science fiction is all over television and it's not the stuff that people have to kind of like shrug and go well i like science fiction so i kind of have to like this even if it's bad there's, there's a lot of good stuff out there mm -hmm. so um 
in many ways, it's, it's science fiction is everywhere, and that's great. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, I don't want to say it's grown past us, because I still think we do something that's unique and important. But um, it, it's not like it was where, you know, it, we were the only place to get your fix at one point in the past. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like for a genre like science fiction that has deep roots in the 50s and 60s and 30s when you guys started, you need to have sort of that connector to where it is today. You need to have the roots, right? You can't just have, you know, these big Star Wars and, you know, these Marvel universes and, and everything without, you know, magazines like yours where people can kind of delve deeper into the genre and find something that's more unique as opposed to what's being, you know, spewed out to millions of people every, every weekend for, for movie theaters. But um, I wanted to ask a follow-up real quick to that yeah. question was, like, where do you see science fiction going? Is it already a part of the mainstream? Do you see it getting even bigger? Do you see it kind of like, you know, grappling back? What, what do you think? Um, this is less a prediction than a hope, probably. But uh, as science fiction has spread, it has, it has also, uh, again, not to denigrate it, but it has also thinned out a little bit. So there's a lot of that science fiction, while there is good stuff, a lot of it is a little bit more uh, surface or sort of just a matter of tropes or whatever it is. And uh, I'd like to think that when the people who get interested in those television shows and games and things like that eventually find themselves looking for something that maybe is a little a little deeper, maybe a little slower moving, but something that um, is maybe a little more thought provoking that when they start looking for it, what it will do is lead them back to literary science fiction. So, you know, books and magazines again. So will that necessarily happen? I don't know. Uh, do, would I like it to? Yes, I think that would be, I think that'd be great, obviously. So while we're on the future, I wanted to ask, when you look for the future of your magazine or science fiction in general, I think taking a step back, there has been, you know, a pocket of years where the publishing establishment was very, you know, monochromatic. In the future, do you expect to see like a, a greater diversity of authors contributing to this genre and, you know, different voices that you're able to bring into the fold to, to tell stories from a different perspective than, you know, maybe we've seen in years past? Yeah, I, I hope so. Uh, the field itself is expanding without i mean the, the great thing about the field is that it doesn't need gatekeepers for the most part that if you have something good uh and you send it somewhere nobody knows who you are nobody knows anything about you that that work is gonna stand on its own and it, you know rejection is always frustrating but if it's good it will it will get picked up, it will get found, it will be seen, somebody will recognize it at some point. Um, so I, I think that's going to naturally continue to allow the field to diversify as more people come in, as it's, as it's made clear that uh, there's room for them in the field. Uh, and, but then it also varies a little bit by, um, by genre and subgenres, that it's, it's something that, um, it's, it's something I've been trying to puzzle out in regards to my magazine specifically over the past couple of years because, uh, again, because of the focus on science, we tend to publish a lot of people who come from STEM backgrounds, from people who um, 
either have uh, higher science degrees or, um, or in many cases are science journalists or something like that. Um, and certainly that's not a requirement, but it tends to be a larger proportion. So there's, there's an issue where you have um, uh, what are generally called uh, underrepresented groups in STEM. Uh, and so that it, it creates a little bit of a trickle down effect to then they, it, it's easy for them to become underrepresented groups in science fiction, which it, it's an issue that just you, you can't sort of leave it alone to sort itself out. So, um, you know, I, I've been talking with some, some educators in New York, which, you know, this year it's on hiatus, I guess. But uh, so we've been sort of brainstorming about what we can do to make to, to make the path a little easier for people who want to get into the field, who maybe don't have an obvious way to do that, who look ahead and say, you know, I'd love to do this, but I don't know how. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in New York, I'm there, I'm available. Uh, so, you know, how do, I, how do we put those two things together? How do we use this to improve the field, even if not specifically uh, my magazine or anything directly relating to me? Because, you know, the health of the field, you know, rising tides lift all ships and all that so hello 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 it's eric if you're listening to this episode of the lit to lens podcast whether or not you're actually enjoying it is up to you but i've got good news there are lots more episodes subscribe to the show on itunes and follow us on spotify soundcloud twitter and instagram all at lit to lens don't forget to laugh at will's jokes in this episode he needs the positive affirmation it's true i just want to put that out there and now back to the show yeah. What have you seen as far as, you know, broadening that base, working with STEM programs or, or anything? I, maybe you don't have something that's like fully formed, ready to promote, but uh, I'm just curious if you've seen any inklings of, of, of new programs or initiatives in the, in the field. Uh, the field tends to be very catch as catch can. I, I have a few ideas about reaching out to specific um, professional groups. Um, and I, I also think there's, um, as the magazines, and not just my magazine again, but as the internet makes dissemination easier and we get picked up in more countries, I think there's also gonna be a more international focus on certain things. Um, the past couple of years, there's been a lot of talk about uh, Chinese science fiction and the rise of Chinese science fiction in the US. Um, and that's, you know, that's certainly a phenomenon that's still ongoing. Uh, I think there's, I think it's only a matter of time before we also start seeing a real explosion of Indian science fiction in the U.S. for very similar reasons. Um, it hasn't happened yet, but, you know, I, it's one of those things that I think is perpetually sort of just right around the corner. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that exactly answered your question, but. Yeah, I think that was good. That was great. So to follow up on the, on the Chinese uh, aspect of the Chinese science fiction that's coming up, when did this when did this start in the US? I mean obviously it's probably been brewing in China for a long time, but it's finally coming to to the US here, you know, within the maybe the past decade or so. And where do you see that going? Uh yeah. Hmm. That's a that's a that's an interesting one. Um working backwards, where do I see it going? Um I think it's only gonna continue to become a, a more commonly accepted uh, part of the field. I, I, I think in the beginning of that trend, um, and, and I would say probably the peak of it, 
would be embodied by the uh, Ken Liu's translation of the three body problem winning, winning the award. Um, so that was probably the, 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 the peak uh, uh, sort of a visibility at least. Um, and then there, there may have been a little bit of a question of how sustainable that was going to be, whether that was going to be something that continues or not. And I, I think there's a, it, it's important that it is something that is seen to be an ongoing process, that it's not just something that you go, oh, well, there are a couple of years where we got a lot of Chinese science fiction and that was that. That I think it's, it's not as flashy, but in some ways it's more important to have it, 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 it clear that it is actually here to stay and it's not necessarily going to become dominant, it's just going to become a, an, an integral part of how we see things, of, of, the, of a more international bent to science fiction. Are there any barriers to like Chinese science fiction, Indian science fiction entering the U.S. you know publishing landscape? Is it a, is it a, just as simple as like where are the translators for for these works, or what are you seeing? Yeah, I I, I think in my opinion probably the primary thing is uh, translators or even um, many of the stories I see that are even written in English. Um, just need more polish than uh, I, in particular, am capable of giving them. Uh, so working with someone else who was a little more, um, uh, you know, who maybe is a, an English spe uh, speaker predominantly um, would be enough to put some of these over, I think, into a, a publishable category. Um, also, uh, I should say, in regard to also Chinese science fiction, uh, Neil Clark at Clark's World has done a lot of work in promoting that as well. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that um, it's just, it's in, in a lot of cases, it's a very small, it's a very narrow line that divides what uh, a lot of the, the stuff I've seen from overseas, from overseas, from being, um, even the stuff that doesn't make it is often very, very close. Right, right. Um, and then obviously I wanted to ask you about, um, so you, you changed the, the name to one of your awards recently, I think it was uh, back in September. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that was kind of a, a difficult thing to deal with. And, you know, uh, you know, we both commend you for, you know, for standing up and making, you know, the decision that you made and everything. Okay. But I'm sure that was kind of hard, you know, it's, it's tough to deal with something that has been, you know, uh, in your magazine for so long and with the naming, you know, of the award and stuff and having to stand up and make that decision, I'm sure was not an easy one for you. Yeah, it definitely was not, it, it, it was a little like eating your vegetables. It was not easy, but it was also necessary and inevitable. Um, it, it, it can be difficult when you know that a portion of your, like so much of American life today, that your readership can be very uh, polarized on certain things, that no matter what you do, you're going to probably lose readers over any stand you make. Um, but in the end, that can also be a little freeing because if you say, look, I'm going to lose people either way. So it, it really just comes down, then it's no longer a practical matter. It really is just a matter of what is, what is, what is the right thing to do here. Uh, and once it kind of, um, once I, I, I sort of began to see it in those, in, in that light, it became a very simple 
again, I wouldn't say easy, but it became a, it became clear what needed to be done. So. Right. Right. So, so moving on from that, um, you know, I think we've kind of touched on the, uh, the magazine world, the, the literature uh, aspect of science fiction. We kind of want to get into the adaptation world. The pulp. Ah, uh, yes. So, so when Adam, um, so we talk about adaptations on this podcast. So we're curious on your opinion on why science fiction is so often adapted. Is it just because it's, you know, it's like, like you said before, it's idea driven. So therefore it's like visually, um, aesthetically pleasing for the viewer. Um, you know, movies are kind of big big scope, you know, these science fiction stories tackle these big scope questions and thoughts and ideas. Um, you know, what kind of makes science fiction attract, attractive, excuse me, for adaptations? Uh, I, I have two theories on that, and you communicated one of them pretty clearly right there, which is that science fiction tends to be, tends to create a lot of fantastic worlds and uh, situations, and there's, that, that creates a, a big visual element to it. So it's logical that people looking to create some kind of spectacle in a film go to science fiction for that. So yeah, the, the visual element is, I would say, half of it. And the other one, maybe a little more subtle, is that uh, Hollywood is fundamentally a conservative business. And I don't mean that, you know, politically, I just mean that, you know, it's, it's risk averse because when you're therefore trying to make all this money, and it requires you to put hundreds of millions of dollars up in the first place, you know, you're, you're, you're not gambling with that. That's, you're not gonna put that on the flip of a coin. You want to be safe. You wanna make sure there's a return on that investment. So it's logical then that the, the way they operate is they look at previous successes. And so in some ways, you can trace it back to Star Wars um, and Star Wars, being so successful led to plenty of knockoffs, which also led to plenty of other successes, which in turn led to more knockoffs of those successes, which in turn led to, uh, I mean, a, a good example is um, Blade Runner, of course, which is, you know, uh, Philip K. Dick. Uh, and again, Dick is a great writer, but he's only one of many science fiction writers. But once that movie existed, the sense of like, oh, now we can adapt anything Dick has ever written into a movie and hopefully that will become something for us there's kind of a direct line there and it's that same kind of very conservative thinking of like okay this is this has been proven to to be successful to to be something that audiences want in the past can we make that happen again can we make it happen again and as much as science fiction is about kind of imagining things that people have never seen before there is sort of the Hollywood aspect which is that's great, but I want you to show me something we've never seen before that's exactly like the other stuff that made us a lot of money. Yeah, so you mentioned Star Wars again there. I'm curious, in your mind, why was that such a big turning point for science fiction on film? Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm of the right age to have been a lifelong Star Wars fan, but uh, what about Star Wars made it a success at the time is probably more than I can guess. Uh, you know, I, I sort of operate from that knowledge that that was kind of ground zero for the big Hollywood blockbuster that has sort of followed ever since. But, uh, but why Star Wars in particular? I, 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 I don't know. I mean, there's, there's whole series of 
things where George Lucas talks to Joseph Campbell about, you know, what the, the appeal is. And I don't, I, there are times where I don't even know if George Lucas himself really is a hundred percent sure, but. He, he talked himself into it after, you know, laying on his pile of money, like Scrooge McDuck. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so another thing that, that you brought up was this idea of, you know, Philip K. Dick writes a story, gets adapted, it's successful. Now we make a bunch of Philip K. Dick adaptions. Why do you think some writers get picked like that and some writers just don't get adapted at all? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's also a good question. Uh, it, it, not to sound like a broken record, but I'm going to say it's that same sense of um, risk adversity that only when somebody in those rare events where somebody finds something that they really believe in and it really takes off do we do we get that that sort of quantum leap in from author to author because right science fiction is full of people who do amazing things and could absolutely uh be be supporting the you know future movies for the next century um but why do some of them why does it happen for some of them why does it not you know i don't i i don't know um Maybe, maybe some, but some people have good agents. Uh, sometimes it's just a matter of random connections. Uh, I, I'm told by a producer friend of mine that uh, Spielberg, Steven Spielberg has, you know, a bunch of uh, copies of analog sitting around in his office. Um, you know, makes sense. Uh, but sometimes it's just a matter of getting under the right pair of eyes, kind of. Yeah. So, Broadly talking about adaptations, for you, just aesthetically, what do you think makes a good science fiction adaptation? Well, uh, I think speaking about adaptations in general, uh, even beyond science fiction, I, I, think, I think a real understanding of the, the source material and staying true to the heart of it, if not the details. The details, are necessarily going to change because film and whatever it is you're initially adapting a book or a short story or whatever, um, they're, they're just different. You can't expect a one-to-one -one comparison, uh, one-to-one transition. But as long as somebody understands the, the heart and the principle and what the original is about and can find a way to convey that in a new medium, I think that's generally the sign of a successful adaptation. Um, I know a lot of people really like the uh, Starship Troopers adaptation, which, you know, has its appeal, but that one stands out to me because it's a, an adaptation that is explicitly and intentionally at odds with the, the intent of the original source material. So you can say it's a good movie, but is it a good adaptation? Open question. Hmm. Right. So... For this season, we covered uh, The Invisible Man, which came out the end of February, um, Solaris, and then The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We've done some others in the past, but I thought The Invisible Man was kind of a curious choice because it's, really, um, it's not really that well-known or that maybe not that well-regarded. It's Ishii Wells. It's, Ishii Wells is pretty popular. Um, and you obviously had War of the Worlds, you know, maybe a decade or so before. But when we went to go see it, it was, it was pretty good, right? And that was like a pretty good um, adaptation with like a modern spin. And I don't know if you got to see that, uh, but I kind of want to get your thoughts on 
you know, if you'd seen or read, you know, The Invisible Man or um, Solaris or uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, so I, I have some familiarity with all of them. Unfortunately, I didn't get to the new version of The Invisible Man. I, I meant to, but uh, I, I think lockdown kind of got to me first. Right. So unfortunately, I, I can't say too much about that one. Uh, I, I've seen earlier versions and I've, I've read the book. Uh, and it, it is interesting that in its own way, it actually is hard science fiction by its own standards, sort of, where it, it takes the prospects of invisibility seriously, that it, it doesn't sort of uh, just hand wave and, oh, this guy's invisible and that's the end of it, that he talks about how long it takes for digestion to, you know, for food to disappear into his digester tract, and uh, that obviously it doesn't extend to his clothes. and um, you know, even some, he doesn't go into it as much as later people, but even some concept of the, of the idea that it would necessarily make it difficult for him to see because the light would pass through his eyes. Uh, other people have taken that more seriously, but he, you know, at least sort of broaches the subject, um, which is interesting too, because it points out that hard science fiction as a subgenre is not necessarily a modern concept that it's a it's more an approach to how you deal with science fiction uh so clearly it goes back to wells at least um and uh yeah i i have to be in, in the mood for it but uh i i actually really i i really like solaris as a movie um i mean that's not like a casual watch like oh, nothing else is on we'll put on a little tarkovsky but uh right uh but you know again that's something that at least is distinctive and it makes you wonder you're like wow why why this of all things would would he want to adapt why would he look at this and go yeah this thing this seems like i could do this um which i also think is interesting uh and kind of on the the flip side i also understand more directly why somebody would want to do hitchhikers you know as a as a movie because the book is obviously so fun you know it's practically calling out to to, to say, you know, come on, pick me up. Let's, let's do something. Let's do this project. Uh, it just, it seems like from the point of view of a filmmaker, Hitchhikers is like a no brainer. Right. I mean. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun to read. I think the movie was kind of disjointed when we watched it. Right. But that was like, that was probably the most fun read I've had in a long, in a long time. But Solaris and uh, the Invisible Man were kind of hard to get through because they were so detailed and I wasn't expecting that. And I did want to make sure that you were mentioning the Tarkovsky version as opposed yeah. to the Soderbergh version. I just wanted to make it clear, but you mentioned it, so we're good. Uh, yes. yes. Have you seen the Soderbergh version or no? You know what? I actually haven't. That one I have not seen. Uh, I like Soderbergh. There's no reason I, I shouldn't watch it, but it didn't happen. It's about an hour less, so you'll, you'll have more time to, for activities afterwards. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> hey, Will here. If you've made it this far, we thank you. There's not much left, we promise. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Twitter, and Instagram at LitTillEnds. We want to continue to grow the LTLian community. If you don't like any of the ideas spread in our conversations, just remember, all those ideas are Eric's ideas. I came up with all the good ideas. And now, back to the show. So, we, so we've also, um, in our podcast, we've also read and watched The Martian, uh, Blade Runner, like you mentioned before, we've also done uh, Watchmen. Um, you know, it, 
there's a lot that have been there's a lot of stories that have been adapted into movies obviously for science fiction but do you have you know a favorite or maybe one or two that kind of stand out to you as like oh these are just so well done this is what i would recommend to you know somebody that came up to me on the street and asked you know uh i do um funnily enough they're actually both tied to analog and i promise this is not just like a weird roundabout self plug uh, yeah. but, <laughs> but um so the first one is i man i love john carpenter's the thing that it's as a horror movie it's not really our type of science fiction but um so i don't know how familiar you are with the the backstory to that but um I had mentioned John W. Campbell earlier as one of the longest running and very influential editors of Astounding who changed it into analog. But he wrote um, Who Goes There, a short story uh, from 19, um, doing, I should have researched this, uh, 1938, I think. And that story became the Howard Hawks, The Thing from Another World, which was then remade into the John Carpenter, The Thing. So by a sort of roundabout circuitous route, The Thing, is based on an analog story um and man what a what a what a good tightly crafted uh you know creepy like i'm not gonna say it's the best adaptation because there are a lot of adaptations but um as far as things that i just have a soft spot for, for like that's that's a great one uh and then the other one which again also kind of ties into analog in that um before it was published as a book, Analog serialized in three, one, two, three, three parts, I believe, uh, Dune. So we actually have a cover of the giant, you know, with the giant sandworms rising out of the, rising, rising out of the desert on Arrakis and all that. And, um, and you know, all of those adapta adaptations have been flawed. I, I, I still like the Lynch version. And in spite of the flaws, I think, or not even in spite of the flaws, because of the flaws sometimes is, is what makes it interesting because that's a very difficult book, of course, to adapt. But um, it, it's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's great to watch. And even the things where you go, huh, well, that's, all right, that's Lynch. Um, there, there's still a certain, it, it lends it a certain character that makes it its own thing and not just purely uh, uh, an attempt to do one-to-one -one of the book. Right. And I'm really looking forward to the the 2020 Dennis Villeneuve uh, adaptation of it, the new one. Right. As are we. As are I, we. I would imagine. <laughs> so a uh, follow-up question to that. So is is that uh, publication, that one that has a Dune cover on it, probably your most sought-after edition or maybe your most purchased or one that you get most asked about? Um. Good question. It, it's, it's tough. I don't know what the, the sort of the secondhand collector's market looks like for that on eBay. Um, I'm lucky enough that I'm kind of exempted from that because I get to just sit in front of a giant co com complete run on bookshelves. So I, I don't know if people are, are having knife fights for it or something. Um, I do know that the art shows up a lot of places uh, because the, the art is so great. Um, it's John Schonauer, I think. Uh, so that, you know, we've made in the in the years since we've we have posters i actually unfortunately i don't have it hanging up otherwise i'd turn the phone but i actually have a, a a huge framed poster of it um you know it's on playing cards it's on all kinds of things but uh yeah so that's often 
you know, those are good touchstones that when people are unfamiliar with the magazine, even though those stories aren't the best example of analog stories necessarily, they're the ones that I know people will tend to be familiar with where but people go, oh, what sort of stuff have you published? And I go, well, have you heard of Dune? And people go, yeah. That's cool. So you're looking forward to the adaptation later this year. Knock on wood, we'll all be able to see it when it's meant to come out. Yeah, um, sir. As far as the adaptation goes, are what what moments are you most curious to see? Like, what are to your mind the, the tougher components of that adaptation? Um, I think there are probably. I think there are some some of the the trippier elements where um, where Paul has visions and. Um, you know, also the navigators and the way they sort of uh, warp space. You know, it's it's nothing that I think is insurmountable. But when I when I think about it, I always think about it. Always seems very sort of almost psychedelic and trippy to me. And I wonder how receptive twenty twenty audiences are to things that are sort of clearly. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't want to say clearly, but seem you know, a little uh, drug inspired, you know, if people are going to sit there and be like, right on, man, or if they're going to just like roll their eyes and be like, oh, it's, it's that, I get it. Um, so I don't know. I don't think it's insurmountable, but I'm, I'm curious to see how they do those scenes in particular. Yeah. You know, Stephen King's still popular. People don't uh, fixate on that part of it. Yeah, that's true. It's true. I'll throw that out there. Um, <laughs> yeah, so <fair. laughs> for your reading life, are there works that you've read that you think, man, this should be a movie. And why isn't it a movie yet? Uh, hmm. You mean purely from a professional point of view? Uh, or just... Yeah. Fandom? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Well, the, the one that I always... That I've sort of been waiting for them to pick up particularly in the, the wake of the popularity of all of the George Martin Game of Thrones things, is uh, Roger Zelazny's um, Amber series, uh, particularly the first five books, the second five, whatever. Um, they're fantasy, they're not science fiction, they're flat out, I mean, there's a little bit of science fiction to them, I guess, but they're, they're fundamentally uh, a fantasy series, and um, they're, they're also not that long. There's uh, two cycles of five books. They're each about 200, 250 pages by most counts, which is to say you could fit the whole cycle of five books in one George Martin book. Um, and they're just, uh, they're incredibly imaginative, well-written, um, detailed, I mean, just ideas every other page that you're like, what is, uh, and they're, they're great. They're, they're high adventure. There's, all sorts of stuff going on. There's almost nothing I can say that would describe them to do them justice. But um, yeah, Zelazny's Amber books would be the ones that uh, I, I can't believe somebody hasn't done that before. There are lots of other books that I go, that would be a good pick, but the Amber ones are the ones where I'm like, somebody's sleeping on this. This is a mistake. Great yeah. pick. Great right. pick. So, Interesting. I don't think I've never actually heard of this. I don't know if you've heard of it, but we'll have to check that out. Maybe we can have somebody make it. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have any uh, production contacts, but maybe we'll make some. And we'll we'll find somebody. Out. Yeah, get on it. Get on it. Just yeah. send the podcast everywhere, and they'll see. Yeah. yeah, we'll figure it out. 
So um, going back to the uh, publication, what are a couple or a handful of works or maybe one specific publication um, that you're most proudest of or what are, you know, what are some of Analog's most proudest moments uh, in, your, in your opinion? Um, at, at the risk of uh, self-aggrandizing here a little bit, um, restricting it purely to um, things that happened in, in my tenure, uh, we've had a couple things where um, we, we celebrated our thousandth issue back in 2016. And uh, I think we put out, you know, as an editor, you can't pick favorite stories, uh, even though editors technically do pick favorite stories for anthologies all the time. But, um, you know, it's like picking a favorite kid. You can't pick a favorite story, but uh, it, I, I can kind of point to Hallmark celebratory anniversary issues as generally being ones that I think are worth if somebody was curious, if you managed to pick up either that one from 2016 or uh, this whole year, we're doing throwback covers using sort of a, uh, it's all commissioned art, but the, the format is, uh, it, it follows the format of the covers from the 60s, which I think were really striking. Um, and the, the January, February double issue from this year, the 2020 double, which is the actual 90th anniversary issue itself. Uh, I think is another good one to pick up. There's some some fun stories in there, and things run the gamut. There's you know there's something lighthearted. There's 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 something for everyone in that one. So um, I would say those would be good good issues to to check out. Awesome. So Tur, how can people follow you? Follow the magazine. How can they support the magazine? Oh, okay. Well, uh, we're on Twitter at uh, analog underscore sf, and uh, our website is. Similar, it's analogsf.com, and uh, there's tons of information about the magazine there. There's usually story excerpts. There may be uh, some full stories available there right now. Uh, you can also pick up the story. There are also links there to subscribe or to pick up, uh, these days, probably the digital version um, on, anal on analog, on, as on Amazon and uh, other e-reader devices and whatever you have. So uh, yeah, either the website or Twitter would be great. And you guys, do you guys still do the print version as well, though? Yes, yes, we do both print and digital. They're both important to the. Uh, they're both important to the health of the magazine. They both. They're they're both valuable. Right. Yeah. Right. Cool. Is there anything you want to shamelessly plug before we let you go? Uh, no. I think I've dropped the name of my magazine enough times, which is a, which is a pretty good plug. What's yeah. it called? Analog, right? <laughs> analog, anal, digital, something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Cool. Well, Trevor, thank you for joining us today. Uh, this was great fun. We look forward to reading future issues of the mag. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, thanks for everything. Thanks for doing the podcast. Thanks for listening to our interview with Trevor Quatri. For more information about our upcoming episodes, follow us at Lit to Lens on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to follow the podcast, find us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And no, we didn't forget. We never forget your first. Shout out Shia LaBeouf. We love you, but more importantly, we miss you. Please come on the pod.